sentence, that first sentence, uh, it says, what then shall we say to these things? So just for context, what Paul is saying, he, he has, whenever he says these things, he's, he's thinking of all of Romans 8, probably. We're not entirely sure, but a good guess is probably all of Romans 8, and I'm not going to be able to recap the whole thing, but, but what we've, or uh, all of Romans from chapters 1 to 8. And I'm not going to be able to recap the whole thing, but, but what we've been hearing all summer in this Romans 8 journey is this, are these themes, right? These themes of freedom, like no more condemnation. These themes of we are now adopted, right? These, this, the theme of, of glory is coming. The theme of we have hope in the waiting, like, right? Like Travis and Daniel and Vanessa or, uh, and Mariah have all, all preached on these things. And, uh, and, and those are kind of the main themes. And this is what Paul is saying to those things. Kind of like, like, a, like a summary or like a conclusion to that. And uh, the reason that this is, uh, in, in my idea of breaking this text down, the defense or, or the universe's turn to attack us is because commentators say that uh, this is actually like God standing in front of his people and saying, who wants to come get my people? Who wants to come get my people? Ryan, oh, Ryan's prayer just had me going. I don't know what he was saying, but like, Satan, you will not get my child. Sin, you will not get my child. That's what's happening, and that's why this is the defense. And, and, and the Lord, he, he shoots out these rhetorical questions. There's five of them. He shoots them out into the universe like, who wants to come get my people? Okay, and we're going to break down each of these questions. We're going to try to explain them with some more depth, and we're going to kind of move quickly. But the first question is, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And at first, the answer is probably like, ah, nobody can truly be against us, right? Like, they might be against you uh, a little bit, but, but the phrase is implying that they will find no success. Right now, we could rattle off a, a few people or a few ideas or a few things that are against us. But what, but what Paul is saying here that is there's a drastic victory in having God for us, that the opposition being against us is so small. Um, to illustrate it, uh, who loves Justin Bieber in this room? Okay, wow, way smaller than I thought. Who hates Justin Bieber in this room? Wow, a lot of indifferent people. Holy cow, <laughs> six hands total maybe. Um, so I was looking it up. The most loved person in the world right now is probably Justin Bieber and also the most hated person in the world. Isn't that crazy? I don't know where you get that stat, but we'll roll with it. Um, I myself, I'm a believer through and through. I saw him in concert. I know the rap to baby, my favorite party trick. Um, I have an unwrapped CD of his Never Say Never documentary that I think someone got for me that I'm going to hang up in my house one day. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but let's just pretend that I hated him for one second. Like, let's just think, okay, uh, if someone asked, hey, Justin Bieber, ah, who's against you? He's not going to say uh, Briar Cochran from Omaha, Nebraska, right? Like, his success is so big that me being against him is, like, non-existent. And that's what I think Paul is trying to say here. If God is for us, who can really be against us, right? Like, I think that's what's happening. Who can truly be against us? Like, yeah, we might have some opposition, but who can truly be against us? That's the first question. Let's move to the second question. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Listen, um... Because the Father gave us his Son, gave up his Son, we never have to second-guess if God is withholding from us. We never have to wonder, man, is God withholding from me? Because he gave up his Son. 
And so if you're ever tempted, man, I wonder if God's withholding from me in this season of singleness. I wonder if God's withholding from me in this season of depression or anxiety. Man, I wonder what God is, is withholding from me. The answer is nothing. Why? Because we have Jesus Christ. And let me, let me pull this out into another illustration for us. Um, my dad was a graphic designer right out of school, and he got a great job in Chicago. And he was killing it. He, he was designing for, like, NASCAR and, like, Gerber baby food and the Army. Um, and he was killing it. And I was born there, and I lived there till I was five. And then he actually decided, you know, I think it's best if we raise a family in southern Iowa. I don't know why. Um, but, uh, but he did odd jobs. Once he moved back, he never really truly got back into graphic design. Um, he did odd jobs, and then once I got old enough, he started coaching me in wrestling, and so there went his evenings and his weekends. I started traveling a lot, so there went weeks at a time uh, for wrestling. And then, and then uh, and there goes the money, right? Like, if he's picking up this random odd job of whatever it is, it's probably just going to get flushed down the drain to take me on a wrestling meet. Um, he sacrificed his purposes, his purpose, which at the time was graphic design. He sacrificed his desire. He sacrificed his money, his time. Now, with that in mind, let's just think for a second. After a wrestling meet, you know, had a good time. We're on our way home. We pull into come and go. And I said, hey, Dad, you want to grab me a water? Imagine if he's like, nope, I'm drawing the line there. It's like, I just want a water. He's like, no, after everything I've done for you, I'm drawing the line there. That's, abs that's absurd, right? So how much more has the Father given us in Jesus? Why would he be like, I've given you Jesus, but like, I'm going to withhold from you with like this small thing. That's the idea that Paul's trying to illustrate here. If we have Jesus, we have everything. He's not going to withhold from us. Let's move to the third question. Keep moving along. We're going to combine uh, the third and fourth question into one. They're pretty synonymous. Uh, who is to bring a charge against God's elect um, or, or who can condemn? So these two questions, and they're pretty simple. Picture yourself in a courtroom, right? That's the, that's the context here. And, and God is the judge. And what he's saying is, is we're, we're on trial. And he's saying, I have the javel, gavel? I don't know how you say it. I have the judge hammer, and I make the final decision, right? I make the final decision. Does anybody want to try to test me? I make the final decision, right? That's kind of what, what he's saying here. Like, hey, who wants to come and make a judgment against my people? I have the judge hammer, right? And then I picture it kind of like a threat to the audience. Like, who's going to cast judgment? Like, I dare you to come try. But then I also picture, and this isn't in the text, so this might be just me kind of putting, putting my own personality into this. I don't know. But I picture him, him like turning to the, the believer and saying, if they can't judge you, then why are you allowed to judge yourself? Right? Like, I have the final judgment. Who can condemn not the world and not ourselves. Like, we can't cast judgment against ourselves. And so that shame that's wrestling inside of you, that, that idea of yourself, whatever it is, when God says he has the final decision of who you are, it's not just other people accusing you of things, but it's also you accusing yourself of own things. Let's move to the last rhetorical question. Who shall separate you from the love of God? This is uh, somewhat of a summary of the previous questions. They kind of all boil down. They could all kind of be uh, condensed into like this idea, does God truly love his people? So who can separate you from the love of God? And Paul kind of goes on this list of examples of suffering, like things that might actually be separating you from the love of God. He says, uh, 
shall tribulations or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. And then he actually, he goes back to the Old Testament and says, uh, for your sake, uh, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to, to, the slaughter, to be slaughtered. And so Paul's saying, like, I know that it might feel like something is separating you from the love of God. Like, Paul is not ignorant to the pain that's happening. But he doubles down. He doubles down. He says, I know you're not always winning. And I know it might feel like you're losing. I know it might feel like boom, 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 boom might be against you. But nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. We're going to come back to that a little bit more later. Paul likes to repeat himself an annoying amount. Um, but just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. Uh, do you see how that's like the universe's turn? Right? Like God's, God's in front of his people defending the universe as it tries to attack the believer. But we're going to move on to uh, uh, the attack. It's now the believer's turn. The tables have turned, right? Whatever uh, analogy we're going to use. The second portion of the text. It's now the believer's turn, and it's only verse 37. He says, no. He's answering all those questions. Is anybody against us? No. Is God withholding? No. Can anybody condemn or judge you? No. Can anything separate you from the love of God? No. A resounding no. And then he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Um, whenever I was in high school, I played eight-man football in Iowa. Basically, what you need to know about eight-man football is if you can walk in a straight line, you're better than 80% of the team. It just is what it is. If you have two functioning eyes, you're better than 90%. It just is what it is. We don't have to get into it. Um, my senior year, we were pretty decent. Uh, I was playing my rival school. In the past three years, uh, we're known for the trash bowl, which means we would both be 0-9 going into the final game of the year to see who was the worst team in Iowa. Um, I was currently 3-0 in the trash bowl, so my freshman, sophomore, and junior year, I went 1-9. Senior year, things are going a little bit better. Okay, we beat our rival school 89 to 6. Yeah, we put it on. It was fun. A lot of fun. 89 to 6. We finished the year undefeated. That's a come up. We're 10 and 0 now. It's fun. We lock up a good playoff seed. So we get back to the locker room. First, second undefeated team my school's ever had. And we, I just, I was like, you know, I'm going to buy a bunch of orange soda. And we're going to get in the shower. It's open shower complex or idea. And we're going to play Jordan Belfort. Jordan? <laughs> You know what I mean? So we're all like in there, and we're shaking up the orange sodas, and we're kind of getting ready to have some fun. We're bouncing around like, undefeated, you know? Like there's just, and then all of a sudden, the bass drops, I be getting dirty, and we pop them, and we're like spraying them around like champagne, and we're just having the time of our lives. Like, I, like there's like 13-year-olds in there, and I was like 17. It's weird to think about, and we're just like, and and I cannot make this up. As I'm just like freaking out to Jordan Belfort with orange soda just all over me, I hear the door just go boom, like so loud. Trash can, boom, punted. And I'm like, oh no, we're about to get jumped by the other team. I'm like, this is not good. Uh, and sure enough, it's my head coach. He, he turns the music off and he, whenever he would get mad, he'd kind of shake a little bit. 
and he'd kind of huff. <laughs> his face would get red. And I'm like, what just happened? Like, I'm thinking, like, did someone get in trouble? Like, what happened? And I cannot make this up. He yells at us. We all have to get out of the shower. And he's like, you let them score six points? And I was like, no way. This isn't real. This can't be real. This is a prank, right? And he's so mad. He was fuming. He was not, he was not joking. Breaks his clipboard over his knee. Freaks out on us for a good 15 minutes. Is like, I'm, this is a disgrace. I'm so disappointed in you guys. Leaves. Just leaves. And I was just thinking about, like, his frustration, like, his, he was so focused on this minor thing, like this extremely in- insignificant issue that it prevented him from, like, being happy and celebrating the fact that it was a great season, uh, beat the rival uh, first in the playoffs, whatever it is, and he's like, six points. I can't be happy, right? And I think, in a way, this is what Paul is saying to us here. Right? I think he's saying we are so focused on the one thing we did wrong, on the one thing that's not going well in our life, the one piece of suffering, the one piece of shame, the one, or maybe it's multiple. And he's saying you can't even celebrate the fact that you have the cross over you. It's, it's not, it's, it, you are more than conquerors. It's a landslide. 89 to 6 is not even close. It's not even close, and we're so transfixed on these small things that we can't even celebrate and find joy in the victory that we have in Christ. Like, I don't care that you forgot to pray one day. Cross covers it, okay? I don't care that you got a 20% on your test. Cross covers it. And it's not even close. It's not even close. Man, it's, and I'm so guilty of this myself, right? Like, I'm so guilty, it's, and it's disrespectful to the cross. It's saying that the cross, like, man, I know you, like, forgave me for my sins, but, like, I'm, I'm not going to celebrate in it for this one, you know? And just how selfish is that, right? And I'm guilty of it, and we're all guilty of it. But, but even in that cross, you know what I mean? It's beautiful. Um, and this is, this is the end of, of the believer's turn. Right? He says, we are more than conquerors. Why? Because of him who loved us. We are more, it's not even close. It's not even close. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. So this is the end of the believer's turn, but uh, the, the, the trump card up the sleeve in this weird analogy, um, even though you've won 90, 89 to 6, you still have one more card to play. I don't know, just bear with me. It's the automatic victory, and, and maybe even the climax of the whole Bible. We're going to look at the last two verses for our last point. Verses 38 and 39. Just really like, sometimes I zone out whenever people are reading scripture. Let's just focus in and just let this, let this sink real quick. Okay? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man. That, I could just, we could just leave on that note. Like that's such a beautiful, beautiful word. That's good news. You want to talk about the gospel? That's good news. Right? 
And uh, I, think, I think Paul kind of summarizes uh, everything that we've kind of been preaching on in the past seven weeks or so with those verses. And uh, I just want us to understand why these two verses are such a big deal. Um, I really believe that if you were to hold this book and say, what is the main point? What is the main idea of this book? I think you could have a lot of correct answers. Maybe not a lot, I think you could have a few. Um, I think if you think that this is a uh, self-help book, you're wrong. Um, I think that there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of, of wrong ways. If you think this is, that this is a, a political agenda, you're wrong. Yeah. Um, if you think that this is, is, uh, is just a, some good philosophy, maybe just, just some good story, you're wrong. If those are your main ideas, man, this is just a good story, or whatever it is. I truly believe that, that if you were to summarize this, maybe one of the answers could be, God, the God of the universe, creates mankind because he wants to be with them and love them, but mankind rejects and runs, and then God pursues them even more. I think that could be the summary of this. And why is this verse important? Why are these verses important? Because I, I believe that if you, if you go all the way back to the beginning, I'm just going to hold this some more. If you go back to the beginning to Genesis 1, and you see creation, and, and God makes the garden, and it's Adam and Eve, and, and he makes the garden so that he can be with and he can love humanity. And then what does Adam and Eve do? Reject and run. What does God do? A few chapters later, he picks a family, Abraham's family, and says, man, I'm going to make them a promise. I'm going to make a covenant with them that I'm going to be with them, and I'm going to love them. And what does Abraham's family do? Reject and run. And then, and then he says, okay, I'm going to keep coming towards them. I'm going to keep pursuing mankind. I'm going to keep pursuing my people. And then, and then he talks to Moses, and he says, I have this land for you. It's the promise, and I want you to go towards it. And, and I finally, I, I, want, I want to be able to be with you, and I want to love you. And what do they do? They reject and run, and so then they're in the wilderness. And God says, I still want to be with you, and I still want to love you. So he's like, build a tabernacle so I can like, be with you in this, in this tabernacle while you're in the wilderness still. And then, and then they still Reject and run. Fast forward, judges, kings, all of that. God trying to be with and love his people. And what do they do? They reject and run. And then you move on to the prophets. Most of the middle of the Bible, God says, man, I, I just want to be with my people. I want to love my people. So I'm going to speak through uh, these prophets and tell people that I love them. And I'm going to show them that by, by maybe uh, telling them, to, hey, you're doing some things wrong and I love you and I want you to act differently. And what do they do? They reject and they run. And then finally, 2,000 years ago, God says, I still love my people, and I'm going to send my son. And he comes down to be with us, and he comes down to love us. And what do we do? We reject, we run, and we kill him. And we kill him. And maybe, not maybe, definitely in the greatest act of redemption and forgiveness, humanity killing Jesus Christ gets turned into the inseparable love of God. It gets turned into the believer's trump card. Because what happened? What happened? Whenever Jesus died and was rose and came back and he ascended to heaven, 
Whenever he ascended, everyone who puts his faith in him gets the Holy Spirit inside of them. And I see Romans 8, verses 38 through 39, as the final stamp. God standing over the story of the Bible saying, finally, my people can't run and reject me anymore. My love will follow them everywhere if they put their faith in me. My love will be with them. They can run. They can reject, but I, nothing will separate them. And why? Because the blood of Jesus is the glue that holds the Holy Spirit to us, the inseparable love of God. So why does this matter? Because I think it's just the, the exclamation point on that, st- that story. Just the finally. Where can my children go to run from my love? And we, can, man, we can play these Christian games. Man, my relationship with Jesus has just been off. I didn't pray very much this week. We can play these Christian games. Man, I just haven't been in community, haven't found a city group. We can play these games of, oh, I can't believe I'm still struggling with that sin. Man, I can't believe I was going to relapse like that. I can't believe that I would have ever went that far. Like, we can play these games like that's going to separate you from the love of God. But if you're a believer in Christ, man, more than conquerors, that doesn't hold a candle. Um, I want to end with this. Let's look lastly, and I'm just kind of we're just kind of repeating ourselves here, but this is so important, I just think. Lastly, at this middle portion, and, and Paul, these last two verses, he kind of rattles off a bunch of things that are never going to separate us from the love of God. He says, you know, no height nor depth. And uh, he says, nor anything else in all creation. Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. And I just, I just want to take this one step deeper. Like, what is that thing in creation that you believe is going to separate you from the love of God? And it, it can, this penetrates so deep, right? Like, let's just read this again and just start plugging some things in. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor my lack of Bible knowledge, nor my ability or consistency to get in prayer, nor my repetitive sinful addiction, nor my laziness, nor my gossip, nor my shame cycle where I start feeling shame and then I feel shame because I'm feeling shame and I know that I shouldn't feel shame right? Nor my sexual past, present, and future, nor my perpetual hiding of sin, because I have this idea of what a good Christian should look like, so I'm going to hide my sin, nor my same-sex attraction, nor my struggle with body image, nor my moment of abuse that I'm just so afraid to revisit, and maybe, maybe that's what separates me, nor that high school relationship that left me wounded and manipulated or whatever it was. We have these ideas of what will separate us from the love of God, and maybe we know, like, oh yeah, nothing will truly separate me from the love of God, but we don't know. We don't operate like that's true. And this is the good news of the Bible, that there's not one thing that you can think of that's going to separate you from the love of God. And to end, like I could give you an alliterated slide of three things that you need to go do. Hey, go do this, go do that, go do this. And sometimes that's good and helpful. I think some texts that's permitted. Um, But after this text, I just don't, I don't think we need a bunch of more things to do. 
I don't think we need a bunch more things to do, and I truly believe that one of the major issues in Christianity nowadays is we think it's primarily about doing. I need to do this. I need to do this politically. I need to do this in my morning routine. I need to do this weekly. I need, I, I, I better not do this. I better not do this, right? It's this idea of things to do, and I, I want you to hear this loud and clear. Christianity is not a to-do list. It's a birth certificate with a new identity and a new name and a new story, and we need to switch from this, this do, do, do to just be, just letting the inseparable love of God just rush over us, Man, we get so caught up in things that we need to do instead of just, that's true. Inseparable love of God over me. God loves me. God loves me. God loves me. And just being, just being a human being. And I just want to, to clarify one thing. This is the believer's triumph. Um... It would be unloving of me to say that this is for, for anybody on the planet. This is for someone who has put their faith in Jesus, right? This is the believer's trump card. So I don't know what, what you have, what this idea of Christianity you might have. Like, it, you, it's just, there's so many things that, like, the world thinks that Christianity is. And so part of that's the Christian's fault. Like, part of it's the church's fault. Like, we, we've just cast this image of Jesus that is just so unloving and I just want to bring you back to this like, it, like you can put your faith in this the inseparable love of God because that's I feel like that's the main point of this so if you're a non-believer would that be true would you would you value that and if you are a believer man just take heart just rest in that whatever that one thing is underneath creation that you think is maybe Separating you, maybe you'd never say that. Whatever you, may, it might be operating like that. Whatever that is, throw it out the window. Let's pray. Lord, I can't even imagine how many times I've taken your love for granted. I can't even imagine how many times I've operated underneath this idea that your love is wavering. And even in that, that's not even separating your love from me. Like it's this weird cycle that even whenever I doubt the cycle, the cycle covers my doubt in the cycle. Uh, That's weird, but also cool. Man, Lord, I'm just... I was thinking Ryan's about to sing a song that's going to echo these words, this scripture. Would you tune my heart? Would you tune all of Saul Omaha's heart to, to destroy whatever that thing is in under creation that wants to separate us? Whatever it is, as we sing, would it just fall? We need you so much. We need you. Thank you for your inseparable love. Thank you for the blood of Christ, the glue that holds your love to us. Help us worship you. Help us worship. And then help us if we don't worship, not feel like we're inseparated by your love. (laughs) All right, I love you, Lord. We love you, in Jesus' name.